Hey, this is Leslie, host of the Rogue Ones podcast. Thank you for listening to this show. You know, I did this limited series in 2018 and 2019. The world was a wildly different place, but knowing that people are still listening to it now and benefiting from these stories brings immense satisfaction. So thank you. If you want to keep up with my own rogue adventures, you can follow me on Substack. Yes, I have one too. An easy link to find that is leslieethompson.com slash Substack. I write on there frequently, but then I'll also post audio vignettes that don't fit into a typical podcast framework. I've been busy, and I bet you have been too, Rogue One. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope to hear from you soon. Now, here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy. You're listening to the Rogue Ones podcast, conversations with extraordinary people doing fascinating things. The rogues featured on today's episode are the brains and the heart behind some iconic pieces of music. Perhaps this sounds familiar. And how about this track, one of my favorites, from the band DC Talk. Or what about this one? Keep listening, my friends. I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson, host and curator of this limited podcast series. The format of today's episode is new. I'll be talking to two rogue ones at once. They're a team. One has lived most of their life in the public eye. The other has been by his side the entire time, supporting the mission and purpose behind the public acclaim. Charlie Ashworth, known professionally as producer, composer, arranger, mastermind, Charlie Peacock, has worked in music and with artists most of his life, guiding, forming, and creating music into work that sets trends for the next generation of music makers. Standing beside him for over 44 years is his wife, Andy Ashworth, who is a caregiver and published author. Together, the Ashworths built a compound-esque recording studio and gathering space on the outskirts of Nashville that also acted as their home and a housing facility for the artists who came to record there. Art House Nashville, it's called. And while Charlie was recording classics with legendary musicians, Andy was making the machine function. She fed, housed, loved, and served these creators in order to ready them for their best work. She also hosted those who came to events in the space, and it's not an exaggeration to say there were thousands that came through Art House Nashville in their time at the helm. All this was done while they raised their young family on the grounds, and eventually, grandchildren. This is perhaps what the Ashworths are best known for, but their long marriage is made up of more than that. Having met as teenagers, Charlie and Andy's life together has been one of extraordinary measures, but not without struggle. In recent years, health concerns and chapter rewriting have been part of their narrative, and yet they remain willfully and joyfully bound to each other and their faith in God. The Ashworths have recently started a new blog together called The Writer the Husband. Each new release features two entries, one per spouse. While Charlie's creative life has often been taking place in the public's presence, Andy's writing has been given a new space to shine through this project. Charlie and Andy welcomed me and my audio team into their home, where she had prepared snacks and coffee for our meeting. 
She gave us hugs and made us feel at home. We talked in their living room, with each Ashworth taking a leather chair. It's a conversation about faith transforming the life of a rogue, and their lessons resonated so deeply with me. This is a conversation about fruitfulness, vocation, hospitality, and building community, things that have yet to be discussed on this podcast series. So now, it's my honor to introduce you to Charlie and Andy Ashworth. So you two have a legacy of building a rich artistic community through your establishment of Art House um, and in your work producing some of the leading artists of our time. Charlie, you have been called uh, one of the most prolific cultural influencers to come out of Nashville, which is just a very big phrase. And Andy, you've been with him every step of the way right beside him, um, establishing things with him, doing things with him. But it all started uh, your freshman year, I think. You think you said when you were at freshman band? Year of high school, was it yeah. band camp? How marching did that band practice? Marching band practice. Yes, the hot summer right before we went into our freshman year. That's yeah. when we met. We weren't yeah. boyfriend and girlfriend until the next summer, but And what was your first I, date? Well, I always think of our first date as the turtle time, right? I mean, that was really our first date. We had spent a lot of big part of the summer talking on the phone, seeing each other a little bit, but kind of right before school was um, getting ready to go back in session, we met at, um, what was the name of the park? Oh, Sam, Sam Brandon. Brandon Park. Yeah, Sam Brandon Our Park Bikes. in Yuba City, course, California. Yes. And I was working a summer job for a department store called W.T. Grants, which had a, a pet center in it. So I, I got a turtle from there and brought the turtle to the to the date. And that was my gift to her. It was a little turtle in one of those, looks like a Chinese food box. So Andy, what did you name this turtle? The turtle was named Percy. And I brought it home and I put it in a fish aquarium. No fish, but just a, an aquarium. And the turtle grew from a little tiny, some of you listeners will be, too young to know when dime stores sold little tiny turtles. Yeah, but there was anyway, quite a... It, oh, so this it, was a small oh, turtle. Oh, yeah, a yeah, little tiny one. turtle. Okay. Okay. That yeah. wasn't what I had I in mean, my when head. We, and when grew. we were kids growing up, that's they were just... Every place sold them. Oh, yes. And it thing. grew to the size of... Uh, how, how yeah, it grew to a normal-sized turtle. It grew there. to fit the aquarium. <laughs> and then on in another summer, probably the next summer, he invited yeah. me over... To bring the turtle to go swimming in a little pond he'd made in the backyard. With not his, us with his, swimming. No, with the little turtle, <laughs> the turtle swimming oh, with, with okay. his so sisters. Not, not all three yeah, of no, you, with his sister's like, wow, turtle. And then a... Percy wandered off. And <laughs> Enterprising. Oh, no, we never away? saw him again. Never did see old he Percy again. I'm glad you guys made it past that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, a lot well, of people probably would have thought... Well, it's all over now that the turtle. <laughs> Some people might have taken that as a sign. I'm glad you didn't. That's true. So where did yeah. you go from there? Because you you've been married now 44 years. Is that right? This May. Mm-hmm. Okay. Congratulations. Thank, Thank you. you. When was how old were you when you got married? Then we were. He was 18. I was 19. What so did your parents think? I think they were. They were. They knew it was going to happen. Okay. We yeah. had been. By that time, we'd worn them down, I think. Through yeah. high school. Yeah, we were very in, inseparable and very much comfort to each other in the midst of um, 
family situations at that time that just weren't ideal at all. You know, I don't think we would ever say this back then, but, we, but basically it was like, I trust you, you trust me. We can't really trust a lot of these other things, but let's bind together and trust together. You know, and, and, and the sad part about it is, is it really is in, in, in the overarching analysis, it's, it's children thinking they have to become adults. You know, and we've made it to year 44. Um, it hasn't been without its cost because of the way we began. You know, I mean, it's it's just wasn't a neutral choice. I think at that time we would have thought it was. You know, that there wasn't. You know, we were young and dumb and didn't think there were any consequences for anything. Sure. Has this uh, lifestyle of writing? Uh, making music, all these things. Is this already well established in your youth? Like some people, some people kind of have always been led by that. Um, what did that look like when you got to that part of your life? Music was definitely in his blood and already happening in his life. Writing for me had just been, um, it was not well established for me. English teachers in in the 70s, at least where we're from, we, they didn't require a lot of us in terms of great literature, but we had a we had an English teacher who assigned us all uh, journaling, and that was really significant for me. I kind of grew from that into my adulthood, wanting to archive, just having this really strong urge to write life down, mm. and I also was a a big reader. Always, and so those two things um, were in me, but they grew and developed. Well, you've actually said you said in your blog, and I have it written down here. Um, had I known what to look for in those days, I might have seen tiny seeds of my future life present in my childhood. Like all young people, there were clues to the complexity of my gifts and desires. That kind of insight only comes when you look backward to find the threads that were there all along. Mm -hmm. So were those sorts of the threads that you look back and you see I do. making this tapestry? Yes, I do. And I just see them. They're, they're very immature. They're very undeveloped. But it's the little pieces, the little breadcrumbs along the way. Mm. So those things were in place in a very undeveloped form for mm. me at that time. Yeah, I, I agree with Andy. Um, those threads were there, and and really our whole life has just been the outworking of them and watching them uh, come to fruition, you know. And then, of course, not an even trajectory. I mean, there's all sorts of ups and downs in the midst of that. But for me, creatively, uh, what I do today is what I did when I was a little kid. Hmm. Um, How do you describe that? How do you, I mean, when you boil because it I was raised by a musician and the music was always in me. I was always someone who could uh, extemporaneously create music. Mm -hmm. um, and I loved art and I used to draw a lot. And, and when I started getting some affirmation for my ability to write, then that seemed like, yeah, that's something I... I like to do too. I mean, even to the point of probably when we first got married, um, I probably at that time would have said, I want to be a writer. Mm -hmm. A songwriter. You know? no, no, no. No, oh, a writer. A writer. Like, I want to be a novelist and a poet. 
You know, but you tell your parents that you want to be a poet. Oh, that's, boy. that's a little lower than a musician, even. <laughs> At that, least they can see musicians making yeah, money on TV yeah. or somewhere. But, I, but yeah. I did, yeah. I mean, I even sold, tried to sell poetry at, at a crafts fair. But, it, but anyway, the point being that those things, like Andy said, that were there for her in the beginning, uh, I have my own set of those, and, and we have... Looking back, now we can see the hand of um, family and of circumstance and of, of in, in our estimation, of God shaping us and forming us for a life that we couldn't yet describe. I am sure that these are numerous and probably too many to count and recall sitting right here, but what are some of early on, what were some of the biggest hands of of your family and and of you know what were some of the biggest things that led you kind of catapulted you to the next thing and to the next thing really our story is that we grew up in a place which we i think both would tell you that we perceived it as a place you leave mm. that's a distinction and, yeah not a place that yeah, you stay yeah a place, a that, place you... that you leave that that whatever was going to happen in our in our life together, it wasn't going to happen there. Hmm. During that time, if you say between 18 and 28 <clears throat> or so, that most of my efforts were put into music and developing as, as a musician and, and kind of incrementally achieving the things necessary that during my time coming up, musicians had to achieve in order to go to the next sort of circle of affirmation and the next place uh, of uh, success or achievement in order to be invited to the next place. What and were some so, of those things? Do you, are, are well, they... you, it's, it's, a, it's very tied to your community. You know, I mean, you have to be affirmed if you're a little kid, you know, you're affirmed by your parents and your, and your neighbors. And then, by your school, by your community, um, by bands that you're in. And then you go out from that. You say, okay, well, I've done this in my little hometown. Now i got to go down the road 50 miles and see if I can do it there. Right. Mm. So while I was sort of learning how to succeed at the music game, mm. you know, I think you were really going back to school. And yeah, I was actually really becoming interested in learning. Mm-hmm. which I hadn't been so much that in high school, was really just trying to survive in those days. Mm-hmm. So became um, interested and found in my college classes, oh, I'm actually good at this. I, I'm actually a good student, and I'm surprised by that because I didn't know. And I mean, a good way to perceive it is that, you know, we're 18 and 19 years old, and a time when most 18, 19 year olds are going away to college, right? Well, we, we gave it kind of a little bit of an attempt and then uh-huh. it was really too, too difficult. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we had well, because to, because we were also we needing had, to pay the rent, we had right. to little jobs. To yeah. Help us yeah. And, and we didn't have any other means to do it. So it was really more about that. So to come back around at it, at it like Andy did, and, and I did to, to some extent was just that longing I think like we don't want to miss out on this. Mm-hmm. We do want to, we do want to learn, and we don't want to sort of have the fact that we got married so young, 
kind of penalize us and mm. keep us out of the game. I would take classes and then we start having children. Okay. So by the time I'm 21, we have our first baby. Mm-hmm. I would major in something different every time I went back. <laughs> Women's studies, um, when that was brand new. Okay. It was just a brand new thing. Um, gerontology was another thing because I had always been drawn to older people and older people's lives since I was a little girl. Social work was another thing. So I was always just trying to find what, always are, people. what are the I think things inside people of are me. all of the, yeah. mm-hmm. the central surrounding yes. things there. What was it that made you interested in old people? I'm curious. Uh, when I was about 10 years old, I went to visit my dad in Oregon. I lived in California. My parents had been divorced since I was four and a half. And I went with my stepsister to, just for the day, she was a nurse's aide at a convalescent hospital. And while she was working, I I just went around with her and I visited with people. I struck up a friendship with with a man named Matt. And when I came home back to California, I kept writing to him and... I can't remember if he wrote to me, but I wrote to him. <laughs> and that's where I remember that was the first time I felt like this being with people who are lonely in that kind of setting, hmm. that means something to me. And it kind of built the older I got. And when we were in California, still, we had a time in our life where so we'd had a difficult uh, few first years of marriage, went through a lot of things had two small children, and then we both uh, kind of one after another became Christians. And it's a real spiritual sort of, awakening. Yeah, very sure. big spiritual awakening that, that really affected kind of the whole of our life. Did you grow up with families that were? My grandmother. Yeah. Or yeah. both sets I mean, of grandparents. But, but in a quiet way, yeah, you know, not, not a... Um, yeah sort of extrovert or explicit way, um, but definitely um, lived out um, what it meant to follow Jesus. I mean, I would say that about my, particularly about my grandmothers for sure. Mm-hmm. You'd probably say yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. So we, we both had such a, a, a gratitude at that point mm-hmm. that, uh, and so when we first started going to our, our first little church, and they needed somebody to host the community to come and study the Bible, or they need it. We just like we we have a lot of shag carpeting. We don't have very much furniture, <laughs> but we'll do it because we were just so grateful to be together, mm. to to be together as a family, to have a little house that we rented, and be together in it. So mm. it it we it started out of gratitude. And then uh, as we went on through those years, Chuck began to travel a lot or be in the studio a lot. So he'd bring people home for dinner or he'd travel or around the world and, <laughs> and invite them. If you're ever in town, come, come be with us. So there was this progression of hospitality and yes. It was I'm set then. learning it, yeah, and also thrust we're, into we're it a bit, kind of thrust into, it, but also in inviting it, also yeah. good with it, uh, happy with it, yeah. and 
So all of that is kind of snowballing, and then we move to Nashville. Okay. We'll get back to Charlie and Andy sharing about the beginnings of Art House Nashville. They'll talk about the importance of building and caring for a place, and not only that, but caring for those who enter that place. This idea of place is so important as we continue on our journeys. On a previous episode, Rogue Number 8, Brandon Hayes, shares about the author and poet Wendell Berry. Berry created a fictional world based in the late 1800s, early 1900s Kentucky with a membership of farmers and landkeepers called Port William. The members of Port William are devoted to their land and care for it. Berry's books, poems, and short stories cling to the importance of place, keeping the ground we live on, laboring where we are with what we have, I'm reminded of this as I listen to the Ashworths talk about their art house community. This and more coming up. Stay tuned. If you've just joined us on the Rogue Ones podcast, I'm so grateful to have you here. Keep your podcast app playing after this episode to meet more rogues handpicked for those of us looking to live extraordinary and remarkable lives. Sometimes it'll feel like a business podcast, and sometimes it'll feel like a human interest storytelling show. The truth is, it's both. Rogues across the country listen to this podcast to get inspiration for wherever they are, and I'm honored to have you listening today. Find all episodes, past and present, at rogueonespodcast.com. Now, let's get back to Charlie and Andy, where we talk about Art House Nashville, and after, their transition to their life after Art House as they start writing, literally, a new chapter. And the, almost the minute we moved to Nashville, uh, Chuck is really, again, he's traveling, he's touring, yeah. or he's in the studio, and he's inviting. Yeah. And then <laughs> we started, and then because we lived in Nashville, a lot of people that we already knew wanted to come to come and live here yeah. <laughs> you know come through town and stay with us so that so it just became bigger and bigger and bigger uh-huh. but all the while um i'm finding oh i'm be- just beginning to learn there are things about this that i really love and i'm really good at i wouldn't have thought about it like that then mm-hmm. but i also am get really exhausted when we're at the table for three hours and Chuck's gone back to wherever he's gone and I'm alone with people. And so it begins to be, um, you know, we're learning the, the good, happy, beautiful parts and the hard parts. The cost of it. The messy parts. Yeah. The cost of it. Mm -hmm. And then we move into the art house and then it becomes really a way of life. And 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 this house was a, a, former church turned house by the owners before you yes it was a methodist church kind of classic um small new england style you know one room church Mm. when we moved into it it was more than that and and then we added on to it significantly but but that's what it was in you know in in 1912 Mm. when we moved to nashville that was our first interaction with um the business of Christian music or gospel music. And I quickly picked up on that, that people thought they were making a genre of music. And that really confused me. Mm. I thought that's just crazy talk. 
Why? You know, genre always wants to narrow and define. I mean, that's that's its uh, ideology. You know, if, if genre has an ideology, that's its overriding concern to conform. My understanding of music and what it meant to follow Jesus is that that music, if there were Christian music, that music would do a multitude of things. It would serve the church all over the world, across generations. And then I knew enough about music that not everyone would be called to serve the church through music. So there would be all of these other musicians who professed to follow Jesus who would be called to different kinds of musical vocations. Mm -hmm. And just like the former, there would be a hundred different ways to express that, you know, mm -hmm. in a hundred different countries, over a hundred different generations. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that, that Nashville or Waco or Chatsworth, California, or wherever it might be, had figured out how to make this thing called Christian music, it just seemed absurd to mm. me. It's like a drop of water in an ocean of possibilities. That's all it is. Mm. You know, the, the, the real music that is made by people of faith is an, and is an ocean of music. Mm. Uh, for me, the overriding concern was to not conform. <laughs> I love that. But to pray and find out what your calling and mission was. Mm. So we took those ideas and, and some complementary ideas to that and shared them with a pastor at Christ Community Church who uh, really understood what I was talking about and, and befriended Andy and I both. And, and as a result of that, we ended up buying uh, this old church and uh, getting some young people who had just graduated from, from uh, university, and they came and lived there and helped us get started with, with this work that we called Art House. In the early days, it had a lot of different kinds of expressions in Nashville. It could be everything from me just going to Belmont and being a guest speaker to having a prof from Vanderbilt teaching on Flannery O'Connor on Wednesday mm. nights to Bible study. And it just had a lot of different ways that expressed itself event-wise. But, but most significantly, it expressed itself just through the one-on-one -on -one, uh, communication with people. Because we, we would have days where we didn't leave our property, right? <laughs> but people were coming to us, uh -huh. particularly once the studio was built. So then we had... Um, you know, a large meeting place. We had offices. We had employees and staff. And we had moved our family. Yeah, and our yeah family so your house is actually becoming... Three years later, we, after yeah, purchasing yeah. Okay. and starting yeah. to do the work there, we moved our family in. Yeah. So and then made a bit it of into a, our home. We basically, I don't use the word compound, but it's yes, growing no, and many was, people no, that's did exactly, use the word. No, that's exactly, okay. what, right. exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah. Because we took, we had a freestanding studio someplace else. We had another house someplace else okay. and we had this. We basically took everything that we were doing and we put it under that one roof. And, and so it was there that I started a record company as well and okay we kept that, you know, under that same roof. I mean, there's just a, a crazy amount of activity for one 
family to uh, withstand. And neither of us are extroverts. But Andy is a lot kinder than I am. So she she would stay in it with people, you know, for three hours when she was just, her introvert was just crying out, right? And I, I'd be like, hey, shut the lights off when you leave. In my defense, I would say it was it was part of the way that I developed the ability to deal with it. Mm. You know, in truth, in retrospect, I was having a lot of problems with it too. But one of the ways for me to deal with it was for me to just sort of stand outside of it, you know, and not, and say like, look, if this, this person is upset because I'm, I'm ready to go back to the studio or ready to go to bed or whatever it is, I can't control that. You know, sure. we, We've already done this unique thing and opened up our entire life to you. And if you're going to have trouble with me needing to go back to work or going to bed, then I guess we'll just have that trouble together. Yeah. yeah. So I was willing to live with that. And that was a way of coping for me. And, but Andy had her own different ways of coping. Yeah. How did you, how did you cope through well, those times? There were... Um... So we ended up having, there were so many components to it, like we said, but in terms of just hospitality and guests, especially once our children were leaving the nest, we had, we, we had renovated the entire house or we were, we had almost finished the renovation. We had more bedrooms than we had when we had kids at home mm -hmm. and they began to fill up more and more. So mm -hmm. we had a really constant stream of house guests for many, many reasons. Some of them music business, mm -hmm. artists who were working with Chuck, but also so many different kinds of reasons that when you look at it and you try to figure it out, I couldn't figure out any other reason than the hand of God is in this. I mean, it's not an exaggeration. I mean, we had thousands of people. Yeah, so, so we had the, the, the gathering component, which... Okay. Yeah. We'd open to the community and maybe have a speaker, have a, have a musician open for a speaker. We'd have theologians, we'd have writers, we'd have authors. That was one component. We had studio guests, so people who were making records yeah. in the studio. They might be staying with us or eating with us. Mm -hmm. So yeah, There would be people coming to have meetings with either one of us. That all happened there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there were a couple of times we did video shoots. Yeah. So I'm cooking for sales all of these sales conferences. people and things. And because it was such a unique place, yeah. people wanted to see it and come to it. Right. So it was, so it would be the kind of thing where if I was in a meeting uh, with a record label and we were talking about launching a record, the first thing to come out of their mouth is, wouldn't it be cool if we could have a party at the art house? <laughs> and right? Andy is going, yes, well, And here's cool. the deal. That what Here's what's happening with me. So the things that actually drew me, these were my core things that made me say yes to this whole venture in the first place, were the words care, shelter, refuge. Um, I, I had a great desire to to make that, to be a part of making that. Mm. And so as I matured and lived more of my life there, it became harder in many ways because there was a too muchness that 
that happened as years went by, but also I really grew to, like, I read this matters to me. It matters to me and, and the details of it matters to me. So I was willing to go a great distance um, to make meaning through hospitality, through place, through relationships. And I knew that it, like it mattered to me if somebody walked in the door, there were good smells coming from the kitchen yeah. or there was a beautiful garden growing outside. Those were the values that were embedded in it, that we wanted to be a place that when you arrived, you, you said, I think good things are going to happen. Mm. And when you left, you say, said, I want to come back. So we intentionally tried to make the choices that we knew the way things made us feel. And uh, we knew what it felt like when someone had cared for us. And so we tried to, to put that into the work. So consequently, everything on the property was, you know, homemade. Sure. <laughs> this is craft before craft, yeah. you know, artisan before artisan. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, there wasn't a thing on the property that we didn't dream up mm. and have built for us, you know, or create ourselves yeah. and... That takes a whole lot of thought and care and yeah, energy. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. it was like the ultimate custom home and recording studio and offices. And compound. Compound. The ultimate. Yeah. And every time we renovated, we renovated with calling in mind. Mm -hmm. So we would make something new knowing that this is what's happening or this might okay. happen. Mm -hmm. We did this. and So it was kind of always an organic thing that was... Yeah. And you moved away from Art House, right? Was it a slow process that you came out of Art House? Or what was the decision to no longer make your home there? We moved just four years ago. It's pretty recent. We were there over two decades, I think. Hmm. I think we lived there. We decided for 23, 24 years. Yeah. And um, it was so hard for us to move away. It was a really special place, and we had... So, so many amazing experiences there. And also as a family home, it was an amazing thing. We had our grandchildren there. And, but just as a whole, the weight of it was, it was very, it was a heavy weight. Financially, it was a heavy weight um, physically just to keep it going. But when we finally decided to move, we'd tried to do it the year before. We'd entertained the idea of it. Mm -hmm. We came downtown one weekend just to spend the night in a hotel and kind of see what it felt like to be able to walk around and be near things and mm -hmm. look at houses. And we just, at the end of it, we just said, let's go home. We just weren't uh, ready. Let's just, let's yeah. just go home. We're not ready. Mm -hmm. We lived another year, built some more, did we build some more stuff? Probably. <laughs> maybe we, maybe we did that thing with the mm -hmm. garden. Um, and then, and then it was finally, and it was really instigated by Chuck uh, to say, we just, I need a change. 
And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit mm-hmm. so we can reflect back because okay. I want to now talk about The Writer, The Husband, which is your new project. Mm-hmm. And Charlie, even since we've booked this interview, you started even another project with your art, yes, which is fantastic. And I want to touch on that. But but now kind of coming to this The Writer, The Husband yeah. project, what was the impetus for launching this new blog? So for between 2010 and 2018, we had a component of our art house work that was a literary blog. And uh, we started it together, and then I kind of took it as a labor of love and was uh, editor-in-chief, and we, and we had an editor, and, and we had lots of different writers writing for us, but it was also a place where I could write anytime I, I wanted. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think kind of separately from each other, we were thinking about, well, maybe it would be a good time in our life to have a blog and for me it was oh that'd be great I would love to do that because I would love to have that ability again to just have a place to write regularly I really admire Andy's writing mm-hmm. and I'm very aware of of how much it touches people and I wanted to come alongside her as a partner to build something together that that could really um, focus on both our writing, but I, but again, as a husband, for me, a big part of it was was wanting to say, "Hey, look at Andy, mm. <laughs> you know, and and dig what she's doing here." One of the topics that you both touch on is kind of coming into this new era for your marriage, and kind of both mm-hmm. in your own creative spaces of slowing down, slowing yeah. the pace down. Um, especially as you mm-hmm. talk about Art House being a place that you were always happily mm-hmm. hosting, but it was kind of draining you. Um, and so, Charlie, in your recent post, you actually wrote that your central nervous system experienced like a meltdown. Is that mm-hmm. is that yeah, correct? Yeah, definitely. Um, and you actually say that a lifetime of mystery illness kind of pointed mm-hmm. to this yeah. uh, underlying problem. Yeah. What was that like working with working with all these people, with working with all these musicians, doing your own? all these things, and then having these very painful and difficult illnesses? Well, there were reasons to call the illnesses something else. You know, I mean, there were legitimate, um, you know, I mean, I I really did have uh, a burst spleen, you know. That that (laughs) wasn't my brain making it up or or any number of things that had happened in terms of, of, of illness over the years. But I think the most significant thing about it is that I was always just one small person. And I lived into an idea about myself that I would be the last man standing. Mm. And that, um, you know, you, I'm sorry you can't compete with, uh, keep up with me, you know? <laughs> it, it was a, a kind of... Uh, survival by arrogance Mm. to sort of say that you know i have more stamina than anyone i can stay up later than anyone Mm. i can do twice as much work now i would never say those things out loud but it was about something that was some sort of sickness that was driving me to think that that's the way i needed to live Mm -hmm. um and i and and that's really what led to this this episodic um, illness pattern 
you know, over many, many years because I was really just doing what, uh, doing to my body and to my mind and to my family, um, just what we weren't made for, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not to take away from the the achievements or the um, benefits, you know, of, of being successful at what you do. But it didn't, it came with a cost. Sure. You know? And I think what you hear us saying maybe in these first couple of blog posts is that uh, for those who are listening, we want you to know that it came with a cost. Mm -hmm. And it's important for us to say that out loud so that we can move on from there. Mm -hmm. Because now it's not like we aren't busy because we're super busy people. But there's a difference between busyness and the ability to be busy and then to say, no, I don't have to do that. And I can quit working now. Mm -hmm. I feel tired. For me, that's a very, very new permission Hmm. that I've given myself over the last couple of years. And that comes with stepping back, with rolling back your responsibilities maybe and and well yeah I wouldn't I would not be in the place of of good health that I'm in today if I had kept riding that train mm-hmm. you, know? you actually talk about a little engine yeah in one of your first Absolutely. Uh, entries there's a little engine well, pushing you th- because the, the 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 mythology of myself was about that I was a person who could get things done and that I didn't quit. Mm. Like quit was not in my vocabulary. Mm. Now get sick (laughs) is in my vocabulary, Mm. but I would get right back on, you know, after I got well enough to do it. And it was always that pattern over and over again. Well, actually you, and chronic resilience is another phrase that you've used that I, I adore that phrase. And can you tell a little bit about why that is? Yeah, yeah. It's because going back to the way we began, uh, when we we kind of trauma bonded, you know, as teenagers, Mm. and I began to take care of us, Mm. you know, very early on, and then Andy doing her part of it as well. But but I was a 16 year old who somehow got it in his head that needed to work full time, right? Yeah. You know, so I missed a part of my childhood because I was trying to organize life in such a way that we would be safe and good, okay. Mm-hmm. And that was that idea of the these children behaving like, like they're adults. adults. I mean, that's why we got married so young. It was you it was two like, against the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it was up to you to yeah, protect each other. Yeah, because the, um, we did not feel safe. We didn't. We didn't feel that we were being cared for at that time. You do mention so you've you've been together. Well, you've been together longer than forty four years, but you're coming up on forty four years yeah, of marriage. Forty seven years. Forty seven years, and the world seems to be completely like dumbfounded by that. You know, the, how can yeah. people be together that long? But I think it's a beautiful thing, and it's a telling thing about wisdom and loyalty. I wonder if you were to sit down with yourselves when you were eighteen and nineteen. What would you say? Would you warn against these things? Would or or have they made you who you've become, and and you don't want to take them away? If you could tell yourself something when you're 18 or 19, what would you say? 
I would love for them to be taken away, mm. some of them. But they did make us who we are as well. Uh, someone had asked the President Trump about regrets and him saying that he had no regrets. And I just, I, I thought that was so humorous because I, I, I can't imagine anyone who's lived uh, a full life not having regrets. Mm -hmm. um, because all regrets are is a manifestation of your imperfection. Mm. And, and, you're, and we're all going to make mistakes and perpetrate against others and be perpetrated against. Um, so for me, I would, if, if I could talk to my teenage self, I would say, no matter what happens, no matter what the circumstances is, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how much you think you need to, you do not need to prove that you deserve to be alive. Wow. Can you give examples of situations where that was something that you felt like you were proving? Yeah, I think from a very early age, my relationship with my dad was very performance oriented. Was he the musician? Yeah, he was a musician too. And so I got the message pretty early on that if I was going to amount to something, the idea of amounting to something was all about hard work. So that was the message. Like, like you won't fulfill your destiny if you're not someone who works very hard, in fact, works harder than everyone else. It's just you won't fulfill your destiny. So mm -hmm. um, consciously or subconsciously, you know, a part of me believed that and it became a compass for me. Mm. And of course, that's a, um, that's a journey that's never ending. Yeah. <laughs> you, you'll never arrive with that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because there's just no peace embedded in it. Um, no matter what you achieve, nothing's good enough. Mm. This subject of peace, what are some ways that the both of you have worked to embed peace? Is this, is this something that over the last several years you've started to focus a little bit more on? And what does that look like? Um, we have done both separately and together over many years, but in particular the last few years, we've done a lot of counseling work mm -hmm. and um, we think one of the biggest things I would say that, that helps the peace that we've come to at this stage of life, and I summarize it, but it's good rhythms and boundaries. Um, pacing, having a life that's multidimensional rather than one-dimensional, where it's all about this one thing all the time, but that it's more well-rounded with a playfulness, with cultivating relationships with friends and family. and um, You rest when you need to rest. You listen to your body when it's saying, I can't. I can't take anymore. I need to rest it for a time and 
you know, um, like paying attention to all of those things is something that's pretty new, new season for us, I would say. Mm-hmm. For people who want to live a remarkable life, and that doesn't mean celebrity, that doesn't necessarily mean monetary success, just a life where they can look back and say, that was pretty cool. That was very remarkable. How can we tune our attitudes to live lives full of uh, remarkable standards? Rather than use the word success, I really like to stay away from that word, and I like to use the word fruitfulness instead. I think it's so much bigger and more dimensional and also not something we can necessarily get to judge Mm. that it's happening or measure, you know, but it's something I think we can pray for and follow what seems like good paths. Um, We can care for people in the ways that we're given to in our own lives and our own circles and um, understand that vocation rather than career is a much deeper, richer, bigger Mm -hmm. word that, that takes in the whole of an individual person's life. You know, that's the way your gifts and talents are lived out, the way you are called to be a father or a mother or a child or a friend. I think that's that's a kind of guidelines that that makes sense to me. Mm. I know they're not specific, but you can take those to your specific life. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The topic of vocation versus career, mm-hmm. I think, is is very profound. Yeah, and so that's why I think we keep anybody keeps living but their vocation for an entire life and it can change shapes. And you might have the same threads and they might look different, but because it's relational, you've always got that and you're Mm. living that out all the Mm -hmm. way through. And so there's just so much room for God to keep revealing and unveiling and um, deepening you and, Mm. you know, and deepening the relationships. Are there any obvious insecurities that either one of you together or individually feel like you're battling all the time and how have you found ways to effectively work with it? I don't come into the world with a lot of securities. I have insecurities all over the place. You know, they're about family. They're about, did I do a good enough job with my children? Like, did I, um, because I was so young, we were always young parents, uh, even I'm getting Easter baskets for the grandchildren. Am I doing it well enough? Will they be happy? Will they be pleased? Will each one be, you know, to, uh, I have insecurities when I, when I'm asked to speak and I'm preparing to, you know, doing the preparation work ahead of time. I have the voices in my head. Why would anybody want to listen to you? What do you have to offer? You know, those kinds of things. So I bring a lot of that stuff. But I have also really pretty secure trust in God being my peace and calling me to all kinds of different things. And that as I walk towards those things, that He's with me in them. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of I'm kind of have all those things mm-hmm. wrapped up Absolutely. together. 
kind of maybe trading off. Right. Right. How about you, Charlie? I think I'm going to borrow from Anne Lamont for a minute and just say (laughs) the only thing I'm certain about is Jesus. Mm. And there are so many uncertainties for me in my being and in my person that, you know, come out as insecurities. I do feel very known by God. Um, And so for me, kind of like Andy, anything that I'm wrestling with is at this point in life, it's really what is passing away that hasn't passed yet. And the older you get, uh, you should become more aware of it. You should be able to identify all those things more and more. And so it can feel a little more chronic, even more as you get older. Mm -hmm. But it's you just really recognizing the full weight of um, the need for the gospel uh, the full weight of what you've been forgiven, the full weight of how you're being changed. And, and so there's that, that tension. You know, you, you, I think if you get in your 60s and you've had a reasonably good life, you know, hopefully you've, you've matured and you're, you're more mature now than you were then. But, but there's never a moment when you don't, aren't aware that you have lived the life you've lived. And it's, mm-hmm. it has its glories and its shames, and it has its, its um, confidences and its insecurities. And, and all of it is a navigation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's all about, you know, I think that's why for people like myself, who've had a, I've had a public life for four decades. And so I learned how to front and how to make you think that I have it together, Mm. you know? And I think the greatest part about this point of being in life together with Andy at this time and, and under the gaze of God is that I can say for the first time in my life, I do not have it together. I want to end with a quote that you actually wrote in your blog, and I thought it was beautiful and a fitting way to end. Today we are experiencing a remarkable renaissance in our marriage and creative lives. Each of us able to say, this is what I hoped for, what I longed for. So 44 years later, that's a beautiful legacy. The Ashworths, rogues number 20 and 21, are the longest living guests I've had on this podcast. Their perspectives are the most full and rich in this way. The next episode, the final installment of the Rogue Ones, will feature our oldest living rogue. I found it appropriate to arrange the episodes this way as we all look forward to long lives of remarkable living. If you liked this episode, You might like my conversation with The Rabbit Room's Pete Peterson. All episodes are at rogueonespodcast.com. Thanks to Freezer Burn Recording for capturing the audio, and Ryan at Sick Island Studios for editing this episode. Be well, my friends.